Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. Uh, This morning, I want to talk to you about the resurrection of Jesus. I do this every time I preach on Easter Sunday, and my hope is that if you're not a Christian, I really want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to see that Jesus really was raised from the dead. And if you are a Christian, my hope is that that what we're going to be talking about this morning will make you more confident in your faith in Jesus Christ. All right, I'm going to have sort normally I jump right into the scriptures and we go into it. I'm going to sort of have an extended introduction this morning, and then we're actually going to look at part of our reading from John 20. So here's what I want to do. Excuse me. I'm a lawyer. Y'all may not know that. Many of you do, but I'm a lawyer. So for the past 25 years, in hundreds of cases, I've been thinking about this question. I've been thinking about this question. What would a reasonable jury examining the evidence of this particular case, what would a reasonable jury conclude? I'll put it another way. What would a reasonable jury or reasonable fact finder, if they were examining an evidence in any particular case, what would they think? What would they conclude? And as I said, this is a question I've thought about for 25 years, and today I want to apply this to the resurrection of Jesus. So I want to ask this question. When we put together the evidence of Jesus' resurrection, what would a reasonable jury conclude? If you're not a Christian, know this. I used to be right there with you until I was until age 25. I was an agnostic. Frankly, I thought Christianity was ridiculous. I thought it was just for weak-minded people who were afraid of death. And I remember asking Christian friends, particularly when I was in high school, I would ask them difficult questions about the faith, about Christianity, about why do they think the Bible's true and all these. They were hard questions. I'm not saying they weren't weren't. You know, they were easy. But the answer that I got over and over again was this. Well, you just got to believe. You just got to have faith. And I would ask, well, how do you know that Jesus was raised from the dead? And they would say, well, you just got to have faith. And I remember thinking, that is the dumbest answer I've ever heard. Because that's what a Muslim says. That's right, right? That's what a Buddhist, a Hindu says. That's what everybody says. You just got to believe. You just got to trust. Or have you ever heard this song? And I don't mean to bust on the song if you love it, but, but have you heard this one? You ask me how I know he lives. You know the answer? He lives within my heart. Okay. Part of that is true, right? We do know the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. So we do know it. But if you ask me why I know he lives, that shouldn't be the answer. I, I do not like that answer or that question at all. My wife said, you better make sure that they're not singing that song today. Uh, so <laughs> So I checked, and we aren't, which is good. Thank you, Chris. Um, so I thought, when I, was, when I was young, I just thought all religions were the same. But I was wrong. And it turns out my Christian friends in high school were wrong. Because Christianity does not say that you should be, believe in Jesus just on blind faith. The Bible actually says that Christianity is based on evidence. Christianity is testable. It's verifiable. Because if one historical event did not happen, then the entire Christian religion is false. And the historical event is the bodily resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus is not physically raised from the dead, then Christianity is false. It's this this one historical event. 
And that's what the Bible teaches. We actually have the slide. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 14. This is what Paul says. He says, if Christ has not been raised, in other words, if this historical event did not happen, he says, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So even Paul says, the Bible says that if Jesus stayed dead, then Christianity is false. That's what the Bible teaches. And in this way, Christianity is different from every other religion. Young people, don't let people tell you that all religions are the same. They're not. Christianity is totally different from every other religion because it's verifiable on this event. Christianity stands or falls on one event, the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Every other religion says this, either I received this revelation from God, I went into a cave and God told me this, or I received this revelation from some spirit or something like that. Well, how can you prove that that's true or false? You can't, right? But Christianity is different because it can be proven to be false, okay? Something else to think about. Christians often think that the burden is entirely on us to prove the resurrection. That's not the case. Because for folks who deny the resurrection of Jesus, they have to explain Christianity. They have to explain the Christian church. Here's what I mean by that. In the decades before and after Jesus' earthly ministry, there were lots of messianic movements in Israel, dozens of them. And in each one of those movements, the followers claimed that their guy was this so-called Messiah, okay? And in every one of those cases, the the so-called Messiah was killed. And you know what happened after every time the Messiah was killed? Every single one of those cases, the movement ended. It collapsed. All the followers just went home. They went back to their normal duties, and that was the end of it. There was nothing more to it. Every single messianic movement in Israel, that's what happened, with one exception. There was one messianic movement from Israel that did not collapse. In fact, this one messianic movement exploded in growth. And during the next few centuries, this messianic movement of a rabbi named Jesus, this messianic movement spread throughout the Roman Empire, And now it is spread out over the entire world. And today, Christianity is the largest religion in the world. So how do you explain that? If you're going to deny the resurrection of Jesus, the burden is on you to come up with some reasonable explanation for how a few followers of a rabbi in Israel started a religion that now has followers all over the world. Because Christianity is not only the largest religion in the world, Christianity is the largest religion in the history of the world. So how do you explain that? Okay, as I said, Christianity is testable because, again, if Jesus is not resurrected, then Christianity is false. And as I said, so I want to bring my experience as a lawyer and think about this question. When we put together the evidence of Jesus' resurrection, what would a reasonable jury conclude? Okay? So now think about this. When a jury, when there's a, say there's a trial going on and a jury is given evidence at a trial, they have to rely on witnesses, right? They have to rely on eyewitness testimony. Because say there's a bank robbery, the jury wasn't there to witness the bank robbery. They have to rely on people who claim to have seen what happened during the bank robbery. So anytime you have a trial, you're relying on eyewitness testimony to what happened. And to determine, and oftentimes you'll get conflicting testimony from witnesses. Some of of them will lie. And so for a jury to determine who's telling the truth, the jury must know something about people, about human behavior, about how people act. 
So here's some things that I've learned. We've got a slide on this. Here's some things I've learned about people in the 25 years I've been working as a lawyer. And I've got just four observations. There's a lot more, but these are four simple ones. If people include details, this is observation number one, if, if people include details that make themselves look bad, then they're probably telling the truth. People rarely say something about themselves to make themselves look bad, but if they do, they're usually not lying. They're telling the truth. Observation number two is this. If people include lots of details about what they've witnessed, then they're probably telling the truth. People that lie don't like giving specific details. You know why? Because they're afraid if they tell the story again, they're going to mix up the details. So people who lie like to give vague statements. They don't like to include specific details about things that are said or things that have happened because they're afraid they're going to contradict themselves. People that lie like giving very vague descriptions. But if a person testifies to exact times, specific locations, and specific words in, con in a conversation, then they're probably telling the truth. Observation number three is this. If people include details that could cause you to doubt their story, then they're probably telling the truth. And that's pretty obvious, and we'll see that actually in the New Testament. And observation number four is this. People will not stick to a lie if the lie will result in harm to themselves or their loved ones. People don't lie if they know that the lie will get them into trouble. People lie to get out of trouble. They don't lie to get into trouble, okay? So with these things in mind, I want to let's play the role of lawyer. If you don't like lawyers, everybody likes lawyers, right? Um, <laughs> if you don't like lawyers, let's play the role of jury, and let's look at evidence for Jesus' resurrection. And here's the conclusion I've come to. This is the spoiler. When you honestly examine the evidence, there's only one reasonable explanation you can come to. And it's this, Jesus really was raised from the dead. All right, this morning we're going to be looking at some of the gospel accounts in the New Testament. Now, when I was a non-Christian, that would send up red flags right there. I would say, wait a second, we're going to look at the Bible to see if Jesus was resurrected? Well, and I would say, how do you know the Bible is true? That's a good question. I don't want to get into it this morning. But it turns out there's lots of evidence to show that the Bible is true. But I will give you just, just one fact that is not controversial at all. And it's, it's this, the New Testament that we have today is, for all intents and purposes, identical to the original text. This week I sent out an article from a Yale University professor named James Choi, and the name of the article is Why I'm a Christian. I, if you want the article, you can come to me or, or you can find it online. James Choi, C-H-O-I, Yale University professor, Why I'm a Christian. It's good. And I like it because it has sort of the standard go-to arguments that I've been using for a long time. One of the things Choi points out is this. He says, all reputable scholars agree that the New Testament that we have today is basically identical to the original text. So if you question any of this, I would encourage you to study that on your own. Also, this is verifiable. Many, many people believed in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ immediately after his crucifixion. There's no doubt about this. Lots of people, immediately after Jesus was crucified, lots of people believed that Jesus had been raised from the dead. This is a quote from that article. This is actually from a non-Christian New Testament scholar named Paula Fredrickson. And I think we have this. And listen to what she says. She's a non-Christian, but listen to what she says. She says, I know in their own terms what they saw was the raised Jesus. That's what they say. And then all the historic evidence we have afterwards attests to their convictions. That's what they saw. I'm not saying that they really did see the raised Jesus. I wasn't there. I don't know what they saw. But I do know that as a historian that they must have seen something. 
She's acknowledging that lots of people said that they saw Jesus raised from the dead. So even non-Christians acknowledge that many, many people believed in the bodily resurrection of Jesus immediately after his crucifixion. And they continued saying that they believed that. And they never denied it. And you know what? That has never happened to anyone else in history. So how do you explain that? That's, that's the question I'm asking. How do you explain these facts that we have? All right, so I'm going to put on my lawyer's hat, and we're going to ask this question when we examine the New Testament. What, what do we find? When we listen to this eyewitness testimony, what would a reasonable jury conclude? I'm going to ask you now to turn to Matthew chapter 26. So Matthew chapter 26. And remember our observation number one, if people include details that make themselves look bad, they're probably telling the truth. Let's look at Matthew 26. We're going to start in verse 56. And just briefly, here's some of the things the New Testament says about Peter and John and the other followers of Jesus. And remember, these are the guys who wrote the New Testament, okay? And what we see is when Jesus was arrested, his disciples abandoned him. Look at Matthew 26, 56, at the end of that. It says, Jesus speaks, and then it says, then all the disciples left him and fled. If we were the disciples and we were making up a story about Jesus being raised from the dead, would we make ourselves, would we tell a lie to make ourselves look like cowards? Would we make up a story showing that we abandoned our leader? No way. Peter in particular looks like a complete coward. If you look down at Matthew 26, starting in verse 69, flip over to Matthew 26, starting in verse 69. I'm going to read from 69 to 74. Listen to what this says. Think about how Peter looks to someone reading this text. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus, the Galilean. But Peter denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, Peter denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. So this account says Peter is denying. He literally, he literally says, I'll be damned if I know Jesus. I don't know that guy, and I'll be damned if I know him. That's literally what he says. But notice in this passage, there are these lots of specific details about what's happened. That's, again, that's strong evidence of it being true. Also, there are these details of conversations that are happening, and they show that Peter was a coward and denied even knowing Jesus. Again, if we were making up a story, would we do that? No way. Absolutely not. Peter was a great leader in the church. We would not go out of our way to tell lies to make him look like a coward. Also, notice this. Peter denied knowing Jesus. He crumbled under the pressure, but he wasn't being interrogated by some powerful person. He was being asked a question if he even knew Jesus, and he was asked by a little girl. And not just a girl, a servant girl. This is absolutely humiliating. If we were making up a story, would we make our leader look like he denied even knowing Jesus in front of a servant girl? There's no way. What we're reading here is the truth. Let's turn to John chapter 19. Flip over to John 19. We're going to briefly go through some, some of these accounts. So Jesus was 
probably arrested. He was arrested probably on a Thursday night. He was beaten and endured a mock trial throughout that night. And then, he, and then on Friday, we believe on Friday, he was crucified. That's what we call it Good Friday because he died in our place. We're going to pick up in verse, this is John 19, verse 31, right after Jesus dies. And again, as we, as we read this account, remember that observation that if people include lots of details about what they witness, they're probably telling the truth. So notice all the details in this account. Look at John 19, beginning verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, specific day, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross, talking about these, the two thieves and Jesus, for, the, for that Sabbath was a high day, specific time, the Jews asked Pilate that, they, that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. I'll just explain briefly. When people were crucified back then by Rome, they were, they were you know, strung up, nails in their hands and feet, and the way that they died, it was a slow process. Many times it would take days. And the way they died was through asphyxiation. They, couldn't, they could breathe in, but they couldn't take a breath out. And the way they took a breath out was they pushed up by their feet to be able to breathe out. And so they knew that if you just break their legs, they hang there and they just die of asphyxiation. They end up dying of cardiac arrest. They can't push themselves up. So they knew if, you broke your le- if they broke their legs, they could kill them real easy. And the Jews didn't want these bodies hanging up when they had this holiday going on. They didn't want the, because oftentimes Rome would leave the bodies up for a month and the birds would eat them and they did that for a purpose. They wanted to intimidate people. They said, this is what happens if you mess with Rome, okay? But on this special holiday, Rome is going to give them a, Pilate's going to give them a break. So they asked Pilate that the legs might be broken so they might be taken away, verse 32. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first, the first thief, and of the other, the second one, who had been crucified with him, with Jesus. Verse 33. Again, notice all the details. Verse 33. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. These are Roman soldiers. <laughs> they, they have the gruesome task of killing people every day. They know when people are dead. Verse 34. But when one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, they took a spear and rammed it up his side, and at once uh, there came out blood and water. Again, I just want you to notice how many details there are, including this specific observation of blood and water coming out of Jesus' heart. The blood and water is consistent with what cardiologists know happens during a crucifixion. Fluid builds up on the heart, and and the person would go into a cardiac arrest. John wasn't a cardiologist. He would not have known that this this type of thing would have happened. He He didn't know anything about the heart. What is he doing? He's just writing details about what he's witnessed. Again, what we're reading is truth. And then verse 35, he says, He who saw it bore witness. His testimony is true. John's talking about himself, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. So John is acknowledging, when he's about to get to the resurrection of Jesus, he's acknowledging that this is hard to believe, but he's confirming it's true. And he's doing this because he wants us to put our faith in Christ. And that's what I'm doing too. That's the goal of of me preaching this morning. I want people to put their faith in Jesus. All right, let's go down to John 19. Look at verse uh, 38 to 42. Here John's going to describe Jesus' burial. And again, notice the details, 38 to 42. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body. And Pilate gave him permission. In another account, that's another thing. In another account, Pilate said, is he already dead? And he had a soldier go and check. He said, yeah, he's dead. That's another thing. 
The gospel accounts are consistent, but they're not identical. That's another evidence of what we're hearing is truth. Because in a court, if everybody says the exact same thing with the exact same words, that's an indication that they've fabricated a story and they're all agreement. The gospels have a little bit different account on these things. Another indication of truth. All right, uh, so Pilate gave him permission to take the body away, so he came and took Jesus' body. So they took his body off the cross. Nicodemus, verse 39, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Notice the specifics, and this is what Jews did. They would wrap up the body with these uh, myrrhs and aloes and, and spices. And they didn't do this to mummify. They did it just to keep the smell down, okay? And again, all the details. Verse 40, so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths. They wrapped it up with the linen cloths with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place, more specifics, where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, specific time, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Again, all these details are so wonderful to me because they're further evidence that what we're reading is truth. Also, this is another indication that makes Jesus' disciples look bad. Because Jesus' closest friends, like Peter and John, where are they? They're gone. They're scared to be around. They didn't have the courage to stick around and bury Jesus. They didn't even go to Jesus' funeral. So these are specific details that make Jesus' followers, who are the authors of the New Testament, look like cowards. No one makes up stories like this to make themselves look bad. What we're reading is the truth. Also, John's description of the tomb has been confirmed by archaeological evidence. Tombs back then were small rooms, like caves, and they were cut in the side of a rock. And inside the tomb, they had these, like, benches going around, and they would take the bodies, and they would lay them on these benches, okay? And now all this is confirmed by archaeological evidence. Another detail, the body of Jesus was laid in a new tomb. This means that there were no other bodies in the tomb, so there couldn't be any confusion about which body was which, okay? So again, remember, specific details are indications of truth. If someone includes specific things like, like specific events and dates and locations and conversations and all that, it's a good indication that what we're reading is true. This is, this is and now let's go to John chapter 20. This was our scripture reading this morning. John 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Many specific details, specific person, Mary Magdalene, place, the tomb where they're buried, specific time, early on the first day of the week while it was still dark, okay? I love these details, so amazing. Then it says, Mary Magdalene, it says, saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb, so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, And she said to them, what did she say? She said, Jesus has been raised from the dead. Praise the Lord. Our faith has been rewarded. Is that what she says? No. She says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. (laughs) They've stolen his body. We don't know where they've laid him. Even at this point, after Jesus had been raised from the dead, his followers still don't believe in his resurrection. They think someone stole his body. Again, this is another detail. Because Jesus said he would be raised, and they didn't believe it. So this is another indication that shows that the followers are looking bad. No one would make up a story like this. I'm going to pause here and mention something about C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis rejected Christianity as a young man. 
but he changed his mind, and later on he became a follower of Christ. Now think about this. Lewis taught medieval literature at Oxford and Cambridge for almost 40 years. Lewis may have known more about myths and legends than anyone in the world. And he said this. He said, as a literary historian, he said, I am perfectly convinced that whatever else the Gospels are, they are not legends. One of the things he said was the gospel were not artistic enough to be legends. They're just describing what happened. And Lewis says this, too. He's got, we've got the quote up there. He's talking about the conversation. He's specifically talking about John's gospel. And he says, he, he mentions that apart from bits of Plato's dialogue, and then he says this, there is no conversation that I know of in ancient literature like the gospel of John. He said there's nothing like it, even in modern literature, And he's writing in, like, say, the 1950s. He said, until about 100 years ago, when the realistic novel came into existence and the art of inventing little irrelevant details to make an imaginary scene more convincing is a purely modern art. And then he said, John put it in simply because he had seen it. Okay? As Lewis said, in fiction writing, the art of inventing little details, we read that today when we read fiction. People do that. But but that's just purely modern. So as we go through this account in John, think about all the little details that John puts in there. And we should keep asking, why does he include this? And the answer is simple. He's an eyewitness, and he's remembering what happened. This is truth that we're reading. This is overwhelming proof that Jesus has been raised from the dead. John, look at verses 3 and 4. Listen to all these little details, irrelevant details. So Peter went out with the other disciple, the other disciple is John, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Why does John record this irrelevant detail that he was faster than Peter? Why does he do that? Because that's what happened, and he remembers it, and so he writes it down, right? This is not fiction. Continuing in verse 5, it says, And stooping to look in, again, archaeologists have confirmed that the doorways to these tombs were always low. You had to stoop to look in, Okay? John simply, again, recording a detail about what happened. Continuing verse 5, it says, He, John, saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Another specific detail. And the fact that the linen cloths were still there is interesting. Because if someone had stolen the body, which is what they claimed, they would not have unwrapped the body and then carried a naked body around Jerusalem, right? You would never do that. So this is one of those little interesting facts that, that they, he's just, this is what he saw, so he puts it in there. Verse 6, and then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. So Peter got there after John, but Peter went into the tomb first. And what's interesting about this, this is consistent with what we know about Peter's personality. Peter would just shove people out of the way and go barging in ahead. He did that all the time. Continuing verse 6, it said, He, Peter, saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Again, these specific details that were never included in made-up stories. So what we're doing is we're reading facts, okay? Verse 8, Then the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. So at this point, John begins to believe that Jesus has been raised. But Peter still does not believe. This is, again, damaging to Peter because it shows that he didn't have faith. And remember that observation number one, if people include details that make themselves look bad, they're they're not lying. All right, verse 9. For as yet, think about what this says about him. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, 
that he must rise from the dead. These are followers of Jesus that we didn't understand the scriptures, right? Look at verses 11 through 18. And here I want you to see that the gospel accounts not only talk about the empty tomb. The empty tomb is true and important. But that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is the fact that people saw Jesus raised from the dead. They met him. They met the resurrected Jesus. They talked to Jesus after he'd come back from the grave. They touched him. They had meals with him. They had conversations with him. They worshiped him. That's the most important thing, not the empty tomb. Look at John 20, verses 11 to 18. I'll read these verses quickly just so you can have an idea about what's being said. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. We've already read this this morning, but it's wonderful. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. Again, she stoops to look in the tomb. Um, And one angel at the head and one at the feet, they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. This is another just little detail, so interesting to me. But she did not know it was Jesus. Who would make this up? Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. (laughs) Supposing him to be the gardener. She said, Nobody's this creative. I'm sorry. She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and they had said these things to her. Again, this is all these details... But something else I want to add to it. If you were going to make up a story in the first century, you would never have a woman be the first person who's the eyewitness to an event. Remember that? that If people include details in the story that make you doubt their story, then they're probably telling the truth. At this time, women were considered gossips and liars, and their testimony was not allowed in court. It wasn't allowed in Roman courts. It wasn't allowed in Jewish courts. So if you, were going, if you and I are making up a story, we would never have a woman be the first eyewitness to the resurrection. That would undermine the credibility of our story. So why do all the gospel writers say that women were the first ones who saw the risen Lord Jesus? Because that's what happened. That's what happened. We're, what we're reading is the truth. Jesus really was resurrected. Also, and this is huge, The people who claimed to be eyewitnesses to the resurrection, they did not recant their story even when faced with death. Remember our observation number four, people won't stick to a lie if the lie will result in harm to themselves or their loved ones. Almost all the apostles and early Christian leaders died for their faith. And God, what I think about, God gave this to us as evidence to confirm our faith. We should be encouraged by this. And he he sacrificed the lives of the martyrs to encourage us in this. This is not a minor thing to think about people who died for the faith. I think about my own life when I complain about little stuff that goes on. And God intentionally allowed his early followers to be martyred, almost every single one of them, so that we would have confirmation of the faith. Also, many of these, not only did they die, many of their families were killed. And they kept saying, because they kept saying that Jesus was raised from the dead. And here's the thing, none of the disciples ever denied Jesus. Not one of them, even when threatened with death. Even decades later, 
You would think decades later, well, maybe my memory's fading. Maybe I don't know. No, they never denied that Jesus had been raised from the dead. They kept saying, I saw him. I, I talked with him. I'm not going to deny Jesus. He's been raised from the dead. That's what they said. And then they died for their faith. They were tortured and murdered, but none of them ever said that they would deny Jesus. Not one. And listen, again, being a lawyer for 25 years, I have never seen, and I can't even imagine a sane person who would be willing to die for something they knew was a hoax. How do you explain this? Remember Peter. Peter who denied even knowing Jesus to a servant girl. But after the resurrection, Peter would not deny that he had seen Jesus raised from the dead. And as a result, Peter was crucified upside down because he felt unworthy to, be, to die in the same manner as Jesus. Andrew was crucified on a Greek cross, like in the shape of an X with his arms and legs extended. But he would not deny that he had seen Jesus resurrected. What about Thomas? Look at this. Thomas was known as Doubting Thomas. Poor, poor Thomas. Throughout history, he's known as Doubting Thomas. Look down at verses 24 and 25 of John 20. Look at 24 and 25. It says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Now think about how bad this makes Thomas look. He says, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. But Thomas says, Even though his friends are all saying Jesus has been raised, he says, I don't care. I'm not going to believe it. I refuse to believe unless I see it. Thomas has no faith, and this is recorded in the gospel accounts. Again, more evidence of its truth. But here's the thing. After Thomas saw Jesus raised from the dead, he didn't stay doubting Thomas. After Thomas saw Jesus raised from the dead, he would not deny the resurrection of Jesus. And tradition says that Thomas went to India and he was martyred there. As I said, almost all the disciples were killed and they would not deny that they saw Jesus raised. This is a fact. How do you explain that? How do you explain the remarkable changes in the disciples' courage? As I said, I've been a lawyer. I've been a lawyer a long time. I keep asking this question. If a reasonable jury were examining the evidence in a case, what would they conclude? I can tell you this. In the case of the resurrection of Jesus, in this case, a reasonable jury examining this evidence could only come to one conclusion, that Jesus really was raised from the dead. There's simply no other reasonable explanation. You can come up with unreasonable explanations if you want. You can come up with your own myths, but the only reasonable explanation is that Jesus really was raised from the dead. We've got a quote from a non, another non-Christian, philosopher of religion, Anthony Flew. I think we got that as a slide. And he says this, the evidence for the resurrection is better than for claimed miracles in any other religion. It's outstandingly different in quality and quantity. This is a non-Christian saying this. God has given us lots of evidence showing that Jesus really has been resurrected from the grave. And here's the thing. Because Jesus has been raised from the grave, this changes everything. This changes everything. I'm going to close with this. For one, it means that Jesus is Lord. He's God. And Christianity is true. And that means you have to submit to this truth. Your life has to change. You have to give your life to Christ. You have to believe what he says, and you have to obey him. He has to be number one priority in your life. Because listen, apart from Jesus, there is no eternal life. 
Apart from Jesus, there is no hope because all of us are sinners. All of us sin against God every day of our lives. And God is holy and just, and he must punish every sin. I'm preaching through Hebrews right now. We're about to come to this verse in Hebrews 9.27. It says this, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Every one of us is going to die, and after that comes judgment. And God must punish sin. And the fact is, all of us deserve to go to hell. All of us deserve hell, especially me. Especially me. That includes you too. All of us deserve to face God's judgment when we die because of our sin and rebellion against God. But here's the beauty of the gospel. This is the good news. God the Father sent his son into the world and Jesus lived the sinless life that we could not live. And although Jesus was without sin, he died the death that we deserved. And he did this because he loves us. Because of God's great love for us, the penalty for sin that should have come to us went out on Jesus on the cross. And so for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, what that means is there's no more hell. There's no more condemnation. So if you put your faith in Christ, all that awaits you is heaven and life forever. Because Jesus has defeated death and hell. And he proved it. He didn't even have to prove it, but he proved it. And he gave us evidence by being raised from the dead. Jesus' resurrection changes everything because it shows that he has power over death. Jesus has reversed the effects of death. And Jesus, his, his victory over death is just the first reversal that he's going to bring about. One day when Jesus returns, he's going to reverse everything in this world that is sad and broken. Everything. And I can tell you this, life is difficult. Life is hard and sad and frustrating and discouraging a lot of times. Many of us, it may look like we have our lives together. I don't. I struggle. It is hard. This life is, is hard and broken, even in the best of circumstances. But when Jesus comes, he's bringing about a great reversal. And he's going to reverse all the, the effects of sin and death in this world. And he's going to bring about joy and beauty and love that we've longed for but we've never experienced. New life is coming in the resurrection when Jesus returns. Eternal love and beauty and joy are guaranteed. We can't even imagine how good it's going to be. Because Jesus lives, we live. And we have the guarantee of resurrection life to come. The great reversal of death has just started with Jesus' resurrection and a full reversal is coming when he returns. The resurrection of Jesus is the guarantee that God will restore all good things that have been lost and the guarantee that God will give us all the joy and love and beauty and life that we've longed for. His resurrection changes everything. Listen, Jesus is alive. The evidence proves it. He's alive, he's the risen Lord, and he's worthy. He's worthy of our praise forever. He's worthy of all honor and glory. And if you haven't given your life to him, do that now. Please, turn to Christ. Give your life to him. And if you have given your life to him, rejoice in the fact that he has defeated all of sin and death and hell. Rejoice in that and live for him and commit to say, whatever you want for my life, Jesus, that's what I want. And I'll suffer for you. I don't care because we know this great reversal is coming. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We praise you. Father, thank you. Again, I just thank you for all the evidence you've given 
before Jesus' resurrection. This could have been done in a corner. This could have been done quietly where nobody even saw it. And yet because of your great love for us, you gave us so much evidence. You gave us eyewitness testimony. And these eyewitnesses, the apostles, were willing to die for this. This is truth. I thank you for this truth. And Jesus, we praise you that you have come and died the death that we deserved. Thank you, Lord. And thank you for being raised from the dead. And thank you for the promise of the promise of the great reversal coming, that you're coming back and you're going to make all things right and it's going to be so awesome and glorious we can't even imagine. So for my friends here, I know there are a lot of us that are struggling. I pray that, that Jesus, your resurrection would encourage us to press on in the faith and, and, and recommit our lives to you, really, our lives to you, and love you more and want to live in faith and obedience and put aside the sin that so easily entangles. So help us to do that. We praise you. Thank you for heaven. Thank you for the resurrection life to come. Thank you, Jesus, that one day you're coming. We praise you and love you. May it be today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.